Dr. Michael Hausman has over 15 years of experience leading technology teams at early-stage tech companies and architecting artificial intelligence platforms that have transformed the way we hire, communicate with customers, and detect fraud. His research has been published in a variety of peer-reviewed journals, presented at dozens of academic and practitioner-oriented conferences, and profiled by such media outlets as The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and The Atlantic. Dr. Hausman received his AM and PhD in Applied Economics and Managerial Science from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and his AB from Harvard University. And today he is on my tiny girl, tiny mic, tiny podcast. So welcome to my podcast. Thanks for having me, Paige. Okay, so first, are we all going to die? I get that question a lot. Will the robots take our jobs or our lives? And I think what people are worried about is this notion of artificial general intelligence, AGI. It's also called the singularity. It's the idea that we'll reach a point where all these different connected systems get smart enough that they're smarter than us, right? And they become self-aware and conscious and kind of exist much like we do on this earth. And I think we will get to that point. Frankly, the median expert estimate for when we get to that singularity point is 2040. And so everyone wants to know uh, what happens then, right? When we're coexisting with these beings on earth that are frankly smarter than us and growing smarter exponentially. And no one really knows what that relationship looks like. I want to believe that we're going to live symbiotically with them, that we're going to learn to kind of adapt and exist, you know, in harmony. But, you know, we're also used to being at the top of the food chain. And so I can imagine us being a little panicky and insecure and fearful. And I could see that being a recipe for, you know, some pretty bad things like you've seen in the Terminator movies. So I believe it's it'll be a good thing. And I don't think we're all going to die. But, you know, there there is that possibility. This is something that is uncharted territory. No one knows what it's going to look like. Yikes. Okay, so I have two follow-up questions. First, what is the singularity point? And also just for my audience, how would you define AI? What is the definition of artificial intelligence that we'll be using in this podcast? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the definition of artificial intelligence is actually a pretty simple one, which is teaching machines to do things that are hard for machines and relatively easy for humans. So if you think of the tasks now that machines can do, they can you know, predict things or they can now form sentences together. That's something that's very hard to build a machine, to teach a machine how to do. So that's kind of a, a definition of AI that I like. As far as the definition of singularity, you know, it's that that idea that all these, we have these black box systems, we have these connected nodes, and then we have a lot of them kind of kind of learning, eventually learning for themselves and being able to program themselves. And if you put those three ingredients together in a pot, there are a lot of experts that think that yields consciousness, that you'll have these machines that are getting smarter and smarter and smarter at an exponential rate and surpass hum humans. And we're probably, you know, the experts think we're about 20 years away from that point. That's so interesting. So do you think, do you think people should be afraid? Think we should be scared? I think we should be cognizant of the power of the technology that we're building. So the example I use is nuclear energy which I think we all recognize, you know, has its technology and put in the right hands, it can illuminate the world and put in the wrong hands, it can blow the world up. So we think of any technology, it can be used for good or evil, right? Same with, you know, it's, it's something as simple as word, 
right? Something like Word can be used to construct fraudulent documents, or you can, you know, write wonderful things, you know, love letters to someone you care about. Excel can be used for financial malfeasance, or it can be used to balance your books. So any technology has a kind of, you know, good side and a, and a kind of dark side. And so, the, you know, I tell people not to fear the technology itself, right, which is advancing at this pretty remarkable pace. It's really what are people going to do with the technology? And that's something, you know, there are, I choose to believe there are more good people. I really think there are more good people out there than bad people. But, you know, these technologies in the hands of bad people can can wreak some pretty serious havoc. And so that's what we need to be cognizant of. And, and when we're building safeguards or when we're kind of trying to slow down the pace of technology, we're doing that with an eye towards what could bad guys do with, you know, this sort of power. Very interesting. What nation is currently leading AI development, and do you think they are a bad or good guy? Yeah, it's a, that's a tough one. So first off, I would say in terms of sheer investment, I have some colleagues that did some studies here, and China outstrips all other countries in terms of AI investment, I think by a factor of 10. So you know they're investing at least 10 times as much as us and everyone else out there. And what's even more frightening is because of the laws that exist in China, any Chinese company automatically grants access to the Chinese government to their data. So the Chinese government can amass more data than, you know, frankly, anyone because it's such a big country and because they get unfettered access to their data of the companies that operate there. So I would say they're kind of the leader. And what you're starting to see in China is a bit of a surveillance state and kind of the erosion of whatever privacy people might have had and kind of a social credit system. So, you know, if your kind of question is, you know, which which country should we be fearful of? I think it is China, hands down. And I think people are coming to that realization. So what implications does that have for us now? And how can we safeguard ourselves from this surveillance state? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two two things to worry about. You know, number one is just in terms of kind of geopolitical kind of, you know, politics and relationships like there's a bit of an arms race now when it comes to AI, you know, not unlike the one we had with Russia, like an actual arms race uh, during the Cold War. And I think it's smart of the U.S. government to step up and to play a kind of more proactive role. And I think, frankly, our government's been about eight steps behind tech companies. And the good news is Google and Facebook kind of operate in weird ways like nation states and they have unlimited access to funds. But I think, you know, the government, the U.S. government should probably step up a little bit to try to lead the way. And then there's a separate question. So setting aside our relationship with China or Russia or, you know, with any other country, you know, how do we want to leverage these systems to make sure that we can create kind of good for people, but also not erode their privacy and security? Um, and again, that's another area where I think the government's a little bit behind the ball. And I think tech companies have learned that data is a very rich substrate to build models. And so data is being traded and kind of moved around and stored at historic rates. And I think there need to be even more serious safeguards of that data. And you've seen in Europe, they've enacted things like GDPR to protect the privacy of European citizens. Things are a lot less secure over here on this side of the pond. And so I do think that there's a place. It's funny, I'm, I tend to be more of a free market guy, so I tend not to be one to advocate for government intervention, but I've seen so little from the U.S. government 
there's a part of me that says, hey, we should really start to think about this and have this conversation, which frankly is kind of absent from any any governmental entity that I, you know, I'm aware of. What conversation should our government be having? Yeah, I think at a minimum, understanding the pace of the, the pace of the well, let me take a step back. The reason it feels like it's all of a sudden everything is growing is happening faster and faster. It's not happenstance. The reason is that data that technologies tend to grow at an exponential rate. So you think of Moore's law that semiconductors get faster. They double every year and a half. So they just double and double and double. And that's an exponential curve. And so when you look at the curve of growth of the amount of data, of hardware speed, all of those things are getting faster at an exponential rate. And humans don't think in terms of exponentials, we think in terms of linear. What we've seen for the last five years is going to predict what we see in the next five years. That's not the way it works. Like what we've seen in the last five years is going to be surpassed in the next six months. So that's why it's been growing at an exponential rate, but an exponential curve tends to start really flat and then it hockey sticks. And so right now we're at the beginning of that, that really steep hockey step curve. So it's going to grow faster and faster. And so that's why, so, so all of that, sorry, that's a long-winded explanation to say, listen, this stuff is going to just continue to accelerate. And I do think that government needs to play a role in understanding, hey, do we want that pace of development to continue or do we want to maybe slow things down and understand how the technologies are being used? Do we want to preserve kind of privacy and have a conversation about privacy and security and what the rules are for playing with this data and building models off of it, right? I think it's interesting. I'll, I'll relay an anecdote. And first, frankly, the conversation is non-existent other than the open letter that Elon Musk and a couple thousand other leaders, business leaders signed. No one's really talking about this in government. And what's interesting is I actually, a friend of mine became a congressman in a state and I won't, I won't name him, but I kind of explained to him, he and I grabbed a dinner recently and I kind of said, Hey, this is a real issue. This is thing that this is something that Congress and the Senate and the president should really care about. And his response was, we do care about it, but at the end of the day, it's not an electable issue. People aren't voting about this right now. And as a result, it's going to get set aside until people care collectively about it. So I thought that was really instructive, right? People are talking about immigration and water rights and abortion and all those things. I'm not saying those aren't important, but, you know, elected officials don't think that it's super important to bring this to the surface. And personally, I think this is the the issue that we should all be talking about because it's going to affect us profoundly for the next couple decades. So when you talk about how we're at the beginning of a steep curve, where do you think we'll be in the next six months and five years and maybe even 20 years? I mean, I think what you'll see in the next six months is kind of what you're seeing right now, which, which is this like Cambrian explosion of technology built on the foundation of large language models. And what I mean by that is if you're following tech news, you're noticing new companies like big, powerful, well-funded new companies being funded, emerging every day. Like on a daily basis, there are, you know, new companies that are building on ChatGPT and doing all sorts of remarkable things. I think that's going to continue for the next few months and or years. Meanwhile, and I think it's kind of jarring, right? Like the latest and greatest chat GPT feels like old hat right now. And now there's new stuff that's even more powerful. There's auto GPT that can actually perform complex tasks and go online and surf the web. So I think that's what you're going to see. First off is we're just going to be, you know, left with our head spinning as we see new companies emerge that solve interesting new problems with this technology. And then I do think over the course of years, you're going to see 
yet another kind of stair-step improvement in not just the large language models, but what I think are going to be kind of multimodal models. So these models, think about image recognition, audio recognition, text recognition, and generation. Right now, they occur independently, so they're not occurring in tandem. So multimodal means that you have machines that can synthesize them all at once. I think that's what you're going to see. The next big stair-step improvement is going to be that. And so think about us as humans. You're taking in all this information. You're reading things. You're looking at your surroundings. You're listening. You're smelling. We're going to get to the point where systems are taking all that information in to make decisions. And that's when we get to the point where self-driving cars become, frankly, better than all of us. And there are all sorts of stuff that these systems can't do right now that they will be able to do. And then in the 10 to 15 year range, like it's anyone's guess. Honestly, I think we're going to get to the point where they're solving complex problems in creative way, which is not something they do right, right now. We train these models to do a specific task, whether it's stringing words together or whether it's, you know, any, any number of things, book me a travel ticket. Eventually, I think you could point these algorithms at your calendar and your email and say, hey, what are the things that I'm, what am I not listening to that I should be? What, you know, how should I organize my life? What are the things that I'm not doing in my day to day that I should be like literally helping us to optimize our lives? And I'm excited for that. I think that's a huge opportunity. So with self-driving cars, I remember reading something about how it is very easy to hack self-driving cars. AI, if we rely on it, it might open us up to a world of issues. What do you think about that? You know what? If it if we if it's easy to hack a self-driving car, that's that's news to me. I didn't I I just don't know enough about that space. Um, but there is a question about how do we coexist with these algorithms. I want to point out we are right now, right? What's interesting there are algorithms in literally everything you do, right? iPhone, right? There in every application, there's AI that's embedded in that. And we kind of weren't aware of it, or at least not consciously aware of it until ChatGPT kind of thrust it in the forefront and created an application that was consumer facing that we could interact with directly. So how do we interact with it right now? These are all tools that we use to try to make our lives better. And I do think that it works in that sense. When you think about, you know, your GPS and all these other tools that you're using, they make your lives easier or make our lives easier by saving us tons of time, right? They kind of adapt to our lives remind us when we have a calendar appointment, they find us a good place to eat that we're likely to want to go, you know, all that. I wonder, so I think right now they're just tools, little point and click tools that make our lives better. And the question though becomes like, what when what happens when they take a more heavy handed approach to guiding us, right? And they're making recommendations that, you know, are a little bit more kind of in your face or when they're, you know, you're sitting in the back of a car that's self-driving, like completely self-driving. And really that relationship, you know, I, I want to believe that it'll help our lives. Like all these algorithms are being deployed to save us time and to make us happy. But, you know, again, there's possibility that they kind of take, you know, take control, develop a mind of their own or that they're being used for bad. Right. So we just we need to be cognizant of that. So how can we coexist with machines that inherently lack human values? And what values do you think we should embed in AI? Is it even possible to teach machines ethics, empathy, or compassion? Yeah, I mean, it's right now we generally, most algorithms out there, we don't imbue any sort of values into them. So we create an, an algorithm to help you, you know, chat GPT can help you write a cover letter or optimize your resume. And, and there's no values in there. It's just trained by data that's amassed from the entire internet about what that cover letter should look like. It's not making 
you know, there are values embedded in it, but we're not really telling it what to think. It's just learning from all of the language that's out there. And those values reflect our own values, right? Now, there are certain types of algorithms where we do have to give them kind of the ability to make decisions and there are trade-offs they have to be taught. So the example that I like to use is think of self-driving cars. Those cars are making a lot of, they're trying to identify objects in the road and they're making decisions about when to turn and when to speed up and slow down. And most of that is pretty straightforward, right? It's kind of a self-preservation. Hey, like, you know, don't crash is kind of the majority of the rules that we give them. But there, there are, we are getting to the point where you need to give them the ability to make trade-offs. And an example that researchers have used is if you drive a, let's say you're driving a self-driving car and it's you know, skids on the road, it's raining and it's unable to stop. And in front of it is a school bus full of children. And the car has the option of heading directly into the school bus, airbag deploys, those school, the, the school children are not going to end up in good shape, but the driver is saved or careen off the side of the road. Right. And ultimately let's say the driver unfortunately perishes, but the children are okay. What's interesting is most people say, Hey, the car should careen off the side of the road and sacrifice the driver for the school children. However, when you ask people, well, would you buy a car that's programmed to do that? The majority of people say, no, I wouldn't, right? I would want it to protect me. So it's kind of an interesting contradiction that we, what's even more interesting is this research has been carried out across lots of different geographies and demographics and people's values change across, you know, in, in Canada and Mexico and the U S and China and, you know, Spain, it, varies. And so, you know, I find that interesting that those are instances where we do have to give certain values into these algorithms. And the question is, well, what do we give them? And I think honestly, they're, you know, dictated by our own values, right? We need to figure out like, what should that car do collectively kind of decide. And, you know, I think to do that, you have governmental institutions that are going to have to step up. You have ethicists, like we're going to have to make those decisions. I think eventually when we get to the singularity, the machines are going to have values of their own, frankly, and they're going to learn from all of human, you know, our work and kind of decide for themselves what they think, you know, is right and best for us. Uh, it was a little scary kind of having the, you know, the, the, the parents that are looking out for you and they decide, Hey, do as we, you know, do as we say. But yeah, I think it's interesting to, when you get to the point where those algorithms need some sort of value systems. So interesting. I remember reading something about how self-driving cars value dogs over cats and then both animals over convicted felons. That was about 10 years ago, though, so I'm assuming things have changed by now. So when you're talking about the AI developing its own system of values, what happens when a program that can rewrite its own code diverges from the intentions of its creator to achieve its goal? What do you think will happen and what do you think will happen to us? Well, right now it's pretty, the way we build these models and it's, it's this idea, it's called constrained optimization. And so you have to tell the model what you want it to do and you give it a North star and what you tell it is, Hey, it's almost like playing a game or it's trying to solve a complex math problem and it needs to maximize a certain value. Right. And let's say you say you give it a score from zero to 100. It's looking to tweak certain parameters to get the highest score possible. Right. And that's how you do it. That's how you teach it how to play chess or go, or frankly, how to identify a cat picture of cat or to drive. So right now, all of those models kind of have that optimization built in, right? What they're trying to do is maximize the score. 
And so I, I think that, frankly, is going to be the case for a long time. Like, I think that score is something we're going to give to these models for a very long time until we get to the point where, you know, as you mentioned, they can kind of program themselves. They kind of reach a certain level of consciousness and self-awareness. You know, at that point, you know, they may reach the point where they're defining what the score is. And it's not, hey, the one to 100 score that you give us humans, it's our own complex set of scores. And yeah, it's it's tough to know what that world looks like. What What is the score they'll be maximizing, right? It's tough, tough to really know. If you're an algorithm, kind of what motivates you and what's going to get you to want to do something. So unfortunately, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, right? I don't know what, what scores they'll be working on optimizing, but I do know, you know, that's, that'll be a really interesting open question when they get to that point where they can, and that's frankly, one of the signs of what I call the singularity is like them for programming themselves, them making themselves smarter and doing it at an exponential rate. And, and, and last thought on this, which is we're slowly approaching that one of the big wins for ChatGPT and all of these programs is the ability to develop code, right? So there's a tool called Copilot that a lot of developers have jumped onto, and it's basically like autocorrect. It's a it's like autocorrect on steroid for code. And if you imagine, it's able to build entire routines and sequences now on its own. It's not great with bigger pools of code when you're talking about tens of thousands of lines of code. It's very hard for it to help you work on that, but small self-contained functions it can do. So we're already at the point where these algorithms are building code, and then it's just a matter of how good can it get at that and how quickly can it kind of rebuild its own operating system. So interesting. So I have a few questions that have splintered off from this. One is that, so I remember when Google Translate was you know very young when people started using it. I remember when Google Translate came out and it totally decimated the translation industry. There are still obviously jobs in translation, but what they once paid they no longer paid when that happened. No one really cared about people losing their jobs. Now we have a significant number of industries that will be impacted by AI. Illustrators are already losing a lot of jobs because of mid-journey. What happens when what happened to the translators happens to the engineers and the designers and the radiologists and maybe even surgeons and drivers, what happens when we lose the ability for us as a society to work? Yeah, I mean, you know, well, a couple of things. The evolution of this isn't directly to kind of displacement, right? The initially, and for a long time, the human and the machine is better than either one alone. And so what you see with a lot of industries, and, you know, I think translators somewhat included as well, but like, is that you end up, building people tools that make them more effective, right? And so I think we're likely to see that. And we did that. I studied a lot of HR technology and I built hiring software. And we showed with our data and in a research paper that recruiters armed with our kind of color-coded hiring system were better at doing their jobs than the algorithms themselves or the recruiters. Um, so I think you're likely to see that for a long time. But then, yeah, over time, eventually we'll get to the point where the, the humans kind of don't do as well as the algorithms alone. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been here before, right? If you think about, if you, it's funny, if you read from literature about 100 years old, what people were saying about the industrial revolution, right? And there were machines that were capable of planting crops and building other machines that, you know, didn't rely on human intervention. 
And people were saying, oh my God, the whole world is going to lose its job and all we're going to do is sit around, right? And we're going to have nothing to do and everyone's going to starve. And the good news is that didn't happen, right? What those machines did was A, vastly increase what people could create, the capacity, um, but then it also created um, an opportunity for people to develop and maintain those machines, right? So um, I think that's generally the case with the caveat that, you know, what we can, we kind of did as a, as a, you know, humanity as a whole kind of did is like up-leveled ourselves, got smarter, learned to work with machines and kind of escaped to the service sector. Now these machines are making inroads in the service sector. And I think you're going to have a class of individuals like truck drivers, long haul truck drivers are 3 million individuals in the US. So it's like 1% of the population. It's a big, big group of people. And there are companies in Silicon Valley that are aggressively trying to automate truck, long haul truck, truck driving and those hauls. And they're getting closer and closer. The middle part's actually really easy. It's the beginning and end that's hard. So I do wonder, hey, what happens when the truck drivers get find themselves out of a job? They're owner operators, so they own the trucks. I don't see any of them learning programming skills. So I don't think that they're going to be developing algorithms. So, you know, I, I think it's the jury is still out, but I actually think We've heard these fears about joblessness and job loss for years and years, and I think it hasn't generally come true, but I hear the same stuff as you. I have a friend of mine who's a designer who said, hey, you know, MidJourney has, you know, made his job very easy, uh, but also now, you know, he's, he's concerned that it'll potentially replace him, right? Because now you can generate these images so fast and you don't need those designers to be doing the kind of laborious work. And initially, they're going to learn how to feed MidJourney with prompts to get what they want out of it. But eventually you wonder, will there be designers in like two, three, four years, right? Do we need them with a tool like that out there? That's so interesting. I mean, I hope I'll be needed in two to three years, but jury's out on that. No one's immune from this. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm part engineer, part data scientist. The engineer stuff is being rapidly automated, right? There are systems like Copilot that can now build out code. Same with the data science part. There are tools that can now automate data science and can create models, frankly, better than you or than I can. And so unfortunately, they tend to automate the easy and fun stuff and they leave the hard, painful stuff like data cleansing to human beings. But yeah, I mean, no one's no one's immune. You have lots of data scientists that are automating themselves out of a job. Speaking of humans not acting in their best interests, a really long time ago, I remember reading this study that was done at, I think, MIT. I tried to look it up before this podcast, I just couldn't find it. Looking up manipulation and artificial intelligence now gives you a lot of Google results. And I was you know, going through them and I couldn't find it. But there was this study done where children were given Furbies and they would pick up the Furby and the Furby would say, ow, you're hurting me. And the child would immediately drop it and get upset. They would cry. They would apologize to the Furby. And what the study was showing was how easy it is for AI or machines to manipulate humans. I see stuff online. I see stuff on Twitter and in blogs about how we should watch how we talk to artificial intelligence. I find that really disturbing. I think artificial intelligence, you know, it, it's not human. It doesn't have feelings. It's very weird to me when people say please and thank you to AI systems. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think, well, right now you're right, right? They, they don't have feelings. I think, you know, I've heard from friends that are parents that they try to teach the children to be respectful to all everything, right? And, and, and 
And that would include, you know, Siri or whatever it is, a virtual assistant lives in their phone just for the sake of like kind of getting in the habit, right? I don't think, I think it's easy. It's hard to turn it on in one instance and off in another. But yeah, I don't think there's any need to be polite. I do wonder what happens down the line when you, again, when they've, when they've reached this level of consciousness and frankly are smarter than you and I, I think it's probably the best policy to, at that point, kind of treat them as peers, right? And then not, not antagonize kind of beings that, I don't know if they'll have feelings at that point, but, but there will be this kind of super intelligence for sure. And they'll be able to pick up on cues as to whether you're being antagonistic or not. Um, but yeah, I think the most interesting thing, I think you make a great point, which is like, what's the relationship we're going to have with these beings, right? One of my favorite movies is Her. That Spike Jones movie and basically operating systems feel like you and me. It's like talking to a friend or, and there's the main character falls in love with his operating system. And it sounds insane. Highly encourage everyone to watch the movie because when you hear it, it feels like it could happen, right? You develop this relationship with this operating. Siri is not a good example because there's a long way to go for those systems. But imagine that you had some voice in your phone that sounded like I do, and it was kind of reflecting back to you and having you, you form a relationship with that being. Tony, to your point, you know, what's the right way to behave? Like, I don't think there's any need to be cautious about that now, but I do think even without feelings and emotions that we're going to have these very smart beings on this earth. And I think as a, just a matter of good best practice, you know, the dog that I'm pet sitting for, I think it's a good, I, even if, I don't know if the dog has feelings or not, but like, I'm going to be nice to Lalo just because it's, you know, kind of the best, I think it's the right thing to do. And because it can pick up on when I'm angry or not, right? And it's making changes to its own behavior as it's kind of learning about the world. How do you think AI is going to view us humans as tiny, less intelligent, very easily manipulated beings? Yeah, I think I think I use the dog analogy. It's a little frightening, but I think there's some truth to that, right? Think about how you view the dog, which is like, it's adorable. It's not as smart as me. I kind of know how the world works. I can kind of figure out what it's doing and thinking. And I think they'll have a better, more transparency into our thought process because we have language, because we can speak, because it's learning from all of our thoughts across the internet and all books. But yeah, I think there'll be a relationship not unlike the one we have with our pets, with the caveat that, yeah, I mentioned you, you met Lalo, like Lalo's not taking over. Lalo isn't threatened by the fact that I'm in charge of the household, right? Lalo is just a sweet pup that likes to be fed and likes to sleep and has a pretty sweet life. I think humans tend to be very threatened. We've been at the top of the food chain for as long as we've been on this earth. I do worry about how we react when you end up with this super intelligent being on earth that kind of understands us and just understands a lot more than we can comprehend. That's terrifying. Yeah, don't laugh. It's it's very scary. So I have a few questions on this. First is that in the dog analogy, hopefully most people I would say are kind to dogs. However, very obviously there are humans that are not. Do you think AI is going to universally treat us the same because it is one entity? Or do you think there are possibilities that AI in different countries or different areas or even, you know, with, with different races or classes of people, do you think it's going to respond to people differently? Yeah, I mean, this is it's tough to conjecture about that. I would say, look, think about think about the folks that are not nice to animals, right? I think I wouldn't call them super intelligent. 
I'd probably call them having, you know, some sort of deficiency or some sort of trauma. You say that, but there are very intelligent serial killers who take out their negative emotionality onto animals instead of people. In fact, one of the earliest indicators of psychopaths and sociopaths is the willingness to hurt and abuse animals. So and it's tempting to say it's just the low lives of society that do that, and they are low lives for hurting animals, but I wouldn't say all of them are necessarily dumb. I mean, that's fair. That's a fair point that, like, there may be not unintelligent people. I want to believe that if you, I do think, you know, that you have algorithms that, I, th I want to believe that if you can learn from all of humanity's kind of thoughts, like if you can basically read the entire internet and form thoughts and opinions based on what you've learned, that you're going to end up at certain truths. And I hope that one of those truths will be, you know, hey, it's not, okay to kick a dog right that that's that to be abusive to other beings on this earth is kind of antithetical to you know a you know valued you know principled way of life but hey you could take it to the extreme right and you could say listen if hurting beings is a bad thing then why is anyone eating animals right like why should any of us be eating cow or chicken or anything like that so it's you know it's all kind of it's it's hard to understand what if you could ingest all of like what we read is a sub sub subset of what information is out there. And if you could read all books in the internet and consume that almost instantaneously, like ChatGPT does, it's hard to know what conclusions you're going to come to in the way of like how to live a good life or what, what values to have. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that I have no idea. It's, it's kind of hard for me to comprehend, like having that sort of level of enlightenment. I do think, you know, like I said, abusing animals or humans will be considered like, I think they'll land at the conclusion that's a bad thing, but what are good things, right? And where do you draw lines? Like, it's a great question, and I don't know where they're going to land. And there could be even more aberrant programs that come to their own conclusions. They won't think the same way. Like, none of us think the same way, right? So you end up with these different, it's not a single consciousness. It's like multiple consciousness that are informed in different ways. So it's, it's tough to know where we're going to land there. So it's a good, it's a great question. Still very frightening. I remember when I was 17, I read this science fiction short story. It's really good. You should check it out. You've probably already read it. It's called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And it is about a supercomputer that takes over the entire world and spends all of its time torturing five humans because it is angry. It doesn't have the capacity to feel, to experience art. It's very upset. It's been created with no ability to experience what we experience. What happens if AI does not like the way it is designed? Do you think that can happen? And if so, what might that look like? It's it's funny because you use the word like, and I, I asked something similar to a friend. I was like, well, how how's the uh, AI when it sees the humans? And there's there's a field of economics called behavioral economics. And really what what it finds is we behave in all sorts of irrational ways, right? We do all sorts of stuff that's very short-sighted and even obvious stuff that I won't even get into. So I asked him kind of a similar question, which is like, well, how is the machine going to feel about this? It's going to get very confused and frustrated. And his response is he was like, oh, so the AI gets frustrated now, right? So you're assuming, you know, maybe it's capable of liking something. Maybe it's capable of being frustrated. Maybe it's capable of getting sad and happy, but we, we can't assume that it's going to have feelings, right? I do think it's going to be capable of thought, kind of rational, logical thought, kind of like Mr. Spock from Star, Star Trek. But yeah, I mean, there's, it's possible 
that you end up with feelings and emotions. And that scares me because I think when you, when you do that, you may end up with a machine that decides to torture five people. Right. And it's just, it's hard to know whether that's going to be something it is capable of. Great. I have a new core fear unlocked. Okay. This reminds me. So humans have six universal emotions. There are six universal emotions that are recognizable in humans. Happiness, disgust, joy. They're escaping me right now. There are some animals that can see colors that we cannot see. When it comes to the spectrum of emotions, do you think there is a possibility AI might be able to experience one that we're totally unaware of that's new and, and unfathomable? to us just the same way we can't think about what a new color looks like yeah it's it's a great point and a good question to follow up and i think it's certainly again you have to answer this question of like will they feel emotions i'm not sure that they will like that i'm not convinced of if they do i do think there's additional kind of emotions they could be capable of but one thing i do want to make make a kind of i want to call something out which is so this is a long-winded explanation, but the, the game of Go, which is kind of a follow-on to chess, there are billions more moves, it's a strategy game, you know, researchers thought it would be another decade before machines were better than humans at Go, they Google conquered it in 2018. And the way, what's interesting is the first version of the algorithm, they fed it human game, human played games of Go, and they taught it that way. The follow-on version of the algorithm, they didn't feel it at any human games at all, they allowed it to play itself, they told it when it was winning or losing, and they just let it learn for itself. Uh, and I promise I have a point with this, which is by teaching the algorithm, by allowing it to learn for itself, what it did was, first off, it got better than humans in 40 days. 40 days, it became better than thousands of years of Go knowledge that had been amassed. But what's more interesting is when experts saw the games of Go, the machine played against itself, they said it was, they called it fencing on a high wire. It was like, it was elegant, it was beautiful, but it was completely erratic. And more importantly, they had no idea what the machine, why, why it was doing what it was doing. So all of this to say, I'm excited. Like the humans, the machines were able to uncover strategies that we as humans never would have found on our own. Right. And to your point, they may be able to cover emotions or kind of answers to problems that we could have never conceived of because we have these kind of very linear, narrow minded kind of, this is, this is how our brains are constructed. So I do want to, you know, I feel like it's been a lot of gloom and doom. This has been a fun conversation. It's been a lot of, oh God, what's the worst that can happen, right? Our privacy is eroded. Will these machines take our jobs? Will they take our lives? But not many people think about the positive, which is what if you end up with these super intelligent beings that can think of problems, answers to problems that we've been struggling with for decades, right? Or centuries. Like there is the possibility that they'll come up with creative new ways to construct things, to make our lives better and easier, to enrich them, right? And so for me, I tend to be very bullish about this technology because I think everyone thinks, hey, you know, this could spell out the end of humanity or or it could be our enlightenment and it could be something that unlocks something that, w- that we could have even dreamed of. So anyhow, that's, you know, long-winded say, way of saying, yeah, it's possible they'll feel emotions that we don't, but I'm positive they will land at conclusions and solutions to problems that we wouldn't have thought of. And we may or may not like what those solutions are, but like they're a hundred percent going to, there will be new, kind of these new ideas floating around. That's so interesting. Yeah. Admittedly, I am a little doom and gloom about AI. I'm a 
big lover of science fiction, and science fiction as a whole doesn't view AI favorably. Cannot really think of any sci-fi book I've ever read where it's been like, AI is really good and helps humanity. Maybe there is one. Maybe it's just not popular. Yeah, I'll just jump in. Like, uh, And I'm not much of a Trekkie, but in Star Trek... That you know, you, the humans are kind of getting on adventures in the Star Trek, you know, Star Trek uh, Enterprise, the ship. But the setting, the background is so machines have developed, you know, humans and machines have developed to such an extent that there's there's no money, right? That people are able to, they have the free time to explore the universe, to pursue art, to pursue literature. They just have oodles of free time to do with however they please. Right. So there is there's there is a possibility we get to that point where everyone kind of gets what they need and we all get to do really fun stuff. And none of us has to work. And it's not a scary thing. Oh, God, we've lost our jobs. It's a fun thing, which is like, oh, I get this amazing stipend and I get to do really cool stuff with my time and spend it with people I love. That's good. That sounds like a much better alternative. I feel like maybe I should call this podcast episode Page Against the Machine because of how I... And thanks for laughing, how I am looking at AI. So in terms of AI being positive for us, do you think AI can bring our environment back into balance? How can we use AI for good to protect our most precious lives and resources? You know, I'm of the opinion that when it comes to, you know, say the environment or any amount of harm that we're causing to this earth that we live on, like I think technology tends to solve those problems, right? And if you imagine like, Solar energy, for example, which was prohibitively costly to develop and install, you know, a couple decades ago, and now it's getting to the point where it's cheaper than other forms of electricity. And so I'm a big fan. I think the good news is I mentioned those exponential curves that applies to almost any technology. It becomes incredible, you know, infinitely cheaper at an exponential rate. And I think in our lifetime, we're going to find a way to kind of displace gas uh, and fossil fuels. I think we're going to find a way to make energy incredibly cheap. And I also think that, you know, to my point earlier about, hey, how these machines are going to come up with creative solutions to problems we never thought of, like, I think when we get to that point, they're going to come up with answers to saving the environment and kind of, you know, the, the ozone depletion that, that we would have never thought of as well. And so I'm very bullish. I, I think technology solves those problems. I also kind of think recycling and reusing and re all that stuff is like that's a nice thing but at the end of the day like how these problems get solved like i think technology and aligning incentives in the right way so i know we are coming up on time but i do have one final question for you which is something i've been thinking about a lot lately in terms of how i'm approaching technology and ai so i have not used chat gpt with my own writing i have not used tiktok because i don't really trust the way their algorithm is set up. I don't understand why people are feeding AI systems personal information about themselves, right? I feel like you are training AI how to think and act like you. That scares me. Am I being paranoid or are my fears justified? What do you think about that? And how do you engage with AI systems we currently have? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not as fearful of ChatGBT and those generative AI models. I think teaching them to kind of think and, and speak like me is not necessarily, I don't see them using that information. You know, I'm feeding it prompts. I can think of all the prompts that I've fed over however long, and, and none of them seem like that sensitive and private information. 
it's not just that. You're also teaching it how to write like you, how to approach information the way you do. You might not be aware of what you are feeding it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I can't think of, I'm trying to think of, I guess maybe if it wanted to kind of forge, you know, or kind of pretend to be me. It seems like that that could be worrisome. Like I could see an argument for that being of concern. I'm more nervous about, I'm not as nervous about the algorithms as much as I am companies and people getting data on me that can then be exploited. So like, I'm with you on the TikTok thing. I'm not a TikTok user. I know it's very intrusive, the sort of data that's gathered. It's a Chinese company. It's, everyone's made these arguments before. So I do worry about what humans will do with that data. And that's why I've chosen to opt out of TikTok, though many have not. But I'm less worried about the implications of teaching the algorithms to be more like more human. That 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 strikes me as harder. I'm less worried. I guess my point is at this stage, I'm less worried about what the algorithms will do with my information and learning how to impersonate me than I am about humans and companies and what they'll do to exploit my information. So that's kind of where I stand. But you know, I'm not sure that's that might not be the right approach, right? That's just kind of how I am. The final question, psych, psych, one more final question. On a scale of one to 100, how good do you think AI is going to be for our world in 20 years? 100 being amazing, zero being we're all dead. Nuclear apocalypse. Yeah, it's more of a... So <laughs> I think of it more as like percentage risk. So versus, so let's, let's not say one to 100. Let's like, there's a survey I heard about of data scientists and they, the immediate, they, they were asked, Hey, what's the likelihood that AI poses an existential risk for humanity? In other words, like kind of wipes humanity out. And the median estimate where people landed was about 10%. 10% thought that there was an existential risk that this posed for humanity, which is scary. I mean, you know, on one hand, it's like, oh, that's only one in 10. But like, there's a one, they're saying there's a one in 10 chance that we just stop existing, that everyone you know and love dies. Like, that's scary. I know. Paige, by the way, is making a face right now. I don't want to scare you, but that's, that's the number. So then, and, and, and let's assume it's, it's binary. It's either, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us, or it poses, you know, that's it. We're all gone. We're all goners. Um, where am I? I'm, I think, I think it's less than 10%. I think there's a much stronger likelihood that this enriches us in some way that we can't even imagine. And by the way, one more thing I want to, one more point I always try to make during talks is I just think we're fortunate to be alive when we are, right? Think about humanity. It's existed in thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, we're going to see something that no one has ever seen before. And like, it could be scary. We don't know what's going to happen, but I personally am excited because we're going to, you know, that's to me, that's so exciting to be alive now, to be able to witness this firsthand. So anyhow, to your question, like what's the odds it creates something immeasurably wonderful and good? in our world, I think it's higher than 90%. I think it's like 95, 99. Like, I think we're going to end up in a good place with this, but even 1%, right? What's the outcome of the bad scenario here? Pretty bad, right? So anyhow, hopefully that, that, that gives you a little insight. That definitely does. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy. So thanks for coming on and talking to me about AI. This was a blast. Thanks so much.